These are days of tough times and ongoing uncertainties. But in Spring Branch, we're taking tangible steps to help our local businesses by telling neighbors about PPP loans, linking them to online courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. In Spring Branch, we speak more than 145 different languages, and that diversity translates into a thriving economy. Our district's a melting pot. It's a great place to find the staff you need. Spring Branch is working for business. Yours. Find out more at spmd.org. Hi, welcome to Looped In. This is Houston Chronicles podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places, it's all here. I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter with Houston Chronicle. And I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle. And today we have one of our colleagues on with us, who's an awesome reporter, Nora Mishanik. And we brought her on today because she did some excellent reporting about a super fascinating uh, neighborhood battle over this proposed historic district in Houston's Third Ward neighborhood within the Riverside Terrace neighborhood. This was a massive and kind of somewhat unexpected controversy that blew up over this proposal to create a historic district within the Third Ward. And the residents did ultimately end up defeating the proposal. But the whole controversy just sort of showed a light on these concerns about possible gentrification in a historically black community and also showcase some of the potential pitfalls that could arise, uh, you know, in this city with no official zoning when we try to create a historic district. So we thought it'd be great to just have Nora on with us to sort of unpack what happened and the implications that this broader controversy could have. So thanks for joining us, Nora. Thanks for having me. So, Nora, could you just start with telling us about what is this neighborhood? What is Riverside Terrace? Riverside Terrace is part of the Greater Third Ward. Greater Third Ward is just east of Midtown. It's kitty corner to the Houston Museum District. And Riverside Terrace is just a few blocks within that much larger neighborhood. And historically, it's been home to a lot of wealthy black families, many of them associated with Texas Southern University, people who are doctors, lawyers, professors. They made their home there. And since the 1960s, it's really held a special place in the heart of black Houston. And even Houstonians who maybe haven't had family members live there, they've maybe had friends They've gone there for parties. It's really central to black life in Houston or has historically been. Um, And so for that reason, I think it's more than just a neighborhood. It's really a place that people cherish and think fondly of. And fun fact, Beyonce actually grew up in Riverside Terrace. So that can sort of give you a little bit of the idea of where it stands in the public imagination. But the thing about Riverside Terrace was you want to say it's a historically black neighborhood, but it's actually more complicated than that, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of how it came to have this reputation? It is a lot more complicated. And I think that that's why it's an interesting neighborhood to look at. And it's also why I think the fight over this proposed historic district had so much heat behind it. Um, Because It's really the story of Houston itself and the history of how exclusion has shaped so many neighborhoods in Houston. Riverside Terrace was first developed by affluent Jewish families who were 
barred at the turn of the century from building in River Oaks because River Oaks at that time was home to a lot of wealthy families, but they had deed restrictions that kept it all white. And so Jewish families were then excluded from from that designation. So they went and built these large stately homes in what's now called Riverside Terrace. For several decades, it was predominantly Jewish. And then in the 1950s and 60s, affluent black families, who many of whom were maybe associated with local universities or, you know, worked at local hospitals, they decided they wanted a part of this as well and tried to move into Riverside Terrace. But Riverside Terrace was barred to them by deed restrictions. So the very first black resident who moved in, he actually did so under the guise of his secretary who signed the deed and then transferred it over to him once they had obtained the property. And his home was bombed. Um, he faced a lot of discrimination for moving in. And in the, over the next few years, throughout the 1950s and 60s, more black families started moving in. And so you had this pattern of white flight. And by the 60s and 70s, the neighborhood had become predominantly black. So it is a little bit more complicated story when you say it's a historically black neighborhood. Yes, but really only since the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Just a quick note. Deed restrictions are like these agreements within the neighborhood, and obviously it's no longer legally valid if your deed restriction says that no black families are allowed. In the 60s and 70s, you couldn't get that enforced by courts, but you could do it through intimidation. One neighbor that I spoke to in Riverside Terrace, she still has her original deed restriction, and it says whites only. So a lot of deed restrictions... You know, they're voted into place by neighborhoods. Um, You have to have a majority of neighbors sign on to them and they take hold for minimum 30 years. The deed that she has is not currently in place, but it still retains that language. And there are still current deed restrictions that do contain racist language. And obviously that's just not enforceable anymore. But it's interesting. I mean, these are ways that residents here in Houston have devised to get around a lack of zoning. These are kind of ad hoc ways of trying to protect the character of a neighborhood, which is really Mm -hmm. also what this historic district was proposed to do. I mean, it was an attempt to try to protect the integrity of Riverside Terrace. It's just that you ended up having kind of competing visions over what it was that was worth preserving. Can you tell us a little bit more? What is a historic designation? This sort of attempt to assert some control over the identity of the neighborhood in a city with no zoning. What does it mean and what's going on? Yeah, a historic designation um, can be put on a neighborhood that has architectural significance, archaeological significance or cultural significance to the city of Houston. The main rule is that you're not really allowed to change the exterior of your house without consulting with the city. So if you live in a historic district, if you buy a home in a historic district, you have to obtain what's called a certificate of appropriateness to do any exterior alterations to your house, construction, demolition, anything like that. You have to get approval from the city and it has to meet city requirements. Beyond that, it doesn't do a whole lot I think sometimes there's a little bit of fear mongering over what it does that it'll raise your taxes. It doesn't change how your house is appraised. 
Um, it doesn't dictate, you know, what color you can paint your house or not. There's not a whole lot of really nitpicky rules like that that I think are sometimes associated with the idea of a historic district. It's really just focused on maintaining this general look of a neighborhood. Are there any other famous historic districts in Houston that people would be like, oh, I recognize that? Like, would, are there some in the Heights? There are some in the Heights, yeah. Could you give us a little bit more background then on this proposed historic district in Riverside Terrace and, and what was happening? It started at the end of last year when a few residents got together and decided they wanted to apply for a historic designation for Riverside Terrace. So they went to the city, they met with historic preservation officers with the city and, and put in their application and started the process. And that triggered letters to homeowners within Riverside Terrace. And homeowners had about 15 days to respond saying yes or no, whether they wanted to be part of the historic district. They initially were targeting about 51 homes, but once they got responses back, they realized that they only really had support or enough support to actually achieve the historic district in a plot of 18 homes. So they shrunk down the size of the historic district and then said, okay, this is going to be our 18-home historic district. These homes are going to, going to be protected. And they had ostensibly achieved a two-thirds support within that 18-home district. But what happened was as they started to approach, you know, a final designation, which requires a vote from city council, more and more people in the neighborhood started learning about what it entails and that it requires you, say, to get this certificate of appropriateness if you want to make modifications to your home. And so there started to bubble up a little bit of angst over, you know, whether or not this was a good idea or not. And up until this point, I think it had been relatively uncontroversial. You know, you had had homeowners saying, yeah, this sounds great. We live in a historic district. We we have historic homes. Um, why not put this designation and just protect them for future generations? Sure, sounds awesome. There really was not a whole lot of questioning over the motives of it or what it might actually do. Um, and so then once it started to head towards city council, there was a very contentious meeting at a local church in Riverside Terrace where about 200 community members showed up, most of them black, and just they were furious that they felt like this was moving forward, but no one had really explained what exactly it was supposed to achieve, what it was going to do, why it was important, because really it had only come from a few homeowners. It hadn't really been a grassroots organizing effort. And so I think from that meeting on, it turned into a much larger hubbub over, you know, who owns Riverside Terrace and what is worth preserving in Riverside Terrace? And I think the the battle lines were drawn between homeowners who said, yeah, let's protect the buildings. Let's protect the homes. And on the other side, you had homeowners, many of them black, saying, wait a second. Riverside Terrace is special because it's historically been our neighborhood and our community and our churches, our schools. You know, it's really the community that's worth preserving and the relationships that are worth preserving, not necessarily 
the brick facades of these buildings. And so I think that's why it turned into something so large was because it was really about this fight for the soul of the neighborhood. And this all culminated in early June when the mayor said that he was withdrawing the proposed historic district and that it would not move forward in his administration, which was a big win for many of the residents who had fought against it for the past several months. And I brought a few clips of some of those residents speaking about, you know, the importance of this fight for them. So the first one I want to play is from Elizabeth Smith, and she's lived in this neighborhood for over 25 years with her two sons. She was actually one of the people within the 18-home district who was opposed to it. For her, this was very personal because it was going to mean the imposition of rules that she was opposed to. These are her remarks to the mayor and city council on June 8th. As African-Americans and Riverside Terrace, we have a heightened sense of gentrification we see all around our neighborhood. We have been fighting for the right to vote, to own property, and to own and keep our homes for generations. I have witnessed this struggle in my own family. African-Americans who are homeowners have an opportunity to establish generational wealth with the handing down of our homes to our children. This historic designation threatens to decimate that dream. In addition, in additional oversight, rules, and permits required to maintain our homes in a historic district are too costly and burdensome for us as middle-class homeowners. Okay, so Elizabeth Smith sort of represented this side to the debate, which was concerned that this historic district could ultimately end up pricing the current residents out. What were the concerns that residents had in terms of this possibly costing them more money or pricing them out, Nora? I think they were twofold. First, on a very practical level, many homeowners that I spoke to were worried about the time and energy it would take for them to go to the city and ask for permission, essentially, to change windows, to change aspects of their home, maybe change landscaping. I think just on a very practical level, they wondered whether they were going to be able to actually carry that out and whether it might be more expensive because, you know, they might have to use a special contractor or special materials to keep their home looking appropriate according to the historic district rules. So I think that was a big concern. I think, though, there was the larger issue of trust or lack of trust in government. I think it felt for for many people like Elizabeth Smith, who, you know, who I spoke to, she said, you know, why would we put our trust in a government that historically has not protected black families? And she said very explicitly, you know, just leave us alone. Let us tend to our own homes and our own families. We don't want the the, the local government having any more oversight than they already do over our lives. And I think that that was a very strong sentiment that was shared by other people as well. Just this lack of trust, you know, why why they would give up some of the decision making when, you know, they've already fought so hard to gain a foothold in this neighborhood to begin with. Mm -hmm. So the part that confused me is I thought that this neighborhood was made up of a lot of doctors and lawyers and upper middle class people. 
So why would the cost of home repairs or the concerns about being priced out apply here? I think the answer really speaks to how much house you can buy as a middle class or an upper middle class person now versus how much house you were able to buy back in the 60s and 70s when a lot of these black families were acquiring their homes. So Riverside Terrace and by extension Third Ward have become very desirable for their proximity to the museum district, their proximity to downtown. You know, these are neighborhoods that are just gradually becoming more and more and more expensive. And they are really large homes. And so I think what I saw just walking the neighborhood, talking to to homeowners, these are homes that are maybe being passed down generation to generation. Like, it's just a lot of facade to maintain. It's a lot of land to maintain. It's a lot of house to maintain. In many cases, for families that are still middle class or upper middle class, it's just like with the cost of materials and the cost of construction, the concern is, you know, that if they have to put even a little bit more money into making these these repairs in accordance with what the city wants as a historic district homeowner, then they're not going to have that money to, I, I don't know, put into... Pay taxes. Pay ta- Yeah, exactly. Which are rising at historic rates, yeah. Exactly. Or um, at least home appraisals are, yeah. And I also spoke to a professor at Rice University, Shawnee Evans, and she talked about something that Elizabeth Smith also talked about, which was generational wealth and how much you have in savings. And just that a person's willingness to invest a lot in their home has to do largely with how much savings they have. If you have a large home that you're hoping to pass on to your children and that's their inheritance, you might not have a lot of money sitting in the bank for you know, a costly roof repair or a costly window replacement. Speaking of generational wealth, you also had a recording to share, I believe, from a another homeowner who touched on this issue. So this next clip I'm going to play is from Addison H. And he's his grandmother's caretaker. She bought the home in 1966. And they are in Riverside Terrace, but not within what was the proposed historic district. And he spoke about what this neighborhood means to him beyond the buildings that this district sought to protect. So I want to play his clip from City Hall on June 8th. My grandmother moved into her house in Third Ward in 1966. Um, I'm now her primary caretaker, and I stand to inherit that house. Um... I'm very appreciative that this um, is not going to go forward, but I want to say something. Um, Third Ward is not just a bunch of buildings. Third Ward is about the people. It's about, you know, football players uh, from Yates after practice going to Wingstop. It's about believing Wheeler Avenue on a Sunday, getting the King special from Frenchies. Third Ward is about the people, and this seemed to be a willful attempt to subvert the will of the people that live here. Um, We are people. We are not buildings. Yeah, I can see sort of your summary, that divide between protecting the 
the characteristics of the building versus people who are afraid that those restrictions might displace them. I think especially in a city like Houston, it's not Boston. It's not New York City. It's a place that frequently is hit by large storms where people frequently have to rebuild. Um, I think this question of what is worth preserving is a really interesting one. Um, Especially, I was thinking a lot about the meaning of that word writing this and thinking about the instances of discrimination that a lot of these homeowners faced, even being able to move into Riverside Terrace and what it means when you say you want to preserve these buildings that are essentially relics of a time when they were excluded from this neighborhood. You know, many of these homes Mm. were built at a time when black families were not allowed to buy them. And so it was really interesting for me to think about what these homes represent to them. Often it was something about the future, right? It was about being able to pass it down. But when you're talking about preserving the past, you know, what is the value of preserving a building exactly the way that it stood when you weren't allowed to buy it? You know, that's just a very different thing, I think, for a black family than it is for a white family. Um, so I, I, in writing this, it, it really forced me to think a lot about the deeper issues of, of what is worth holding on to in a city like Houston. Yeah, and it's interesting. Some of the buildings have been redone by the Black families who bought them in ways that are super architecturally interesting, like some really cool modernist homes with, you know, the atriums with all the plants inside that I think were very like 60s or 70s. I don't know exactly when they redid it. The neighborhood definitely has like different layers of Houston's history baked into it. So Mm -hmm. it's a complicated thing. What did you find when you actually went out and talked to the neighbors? This was a very unscientific, informal poll. It definitely appeared to me that the people that were in support of it were white families and didn't necessarily have any mistrust of what a historic district might entail um, and just thought on its surface, this seemed like a great idea. So why not vote, vote yes? And it is important to note, though, that the person who is the main proponent of it, who um who, you know, spearheaded this whole movement. He is relatively new to the neighborhood. His name's Asif Mahmood, and he moved in about five years ago and now owns several properties in the neighborhood. Um, So I think it was also easy for people to feel that this was kind of coming from an outsider, even one who is not white, but somebody who is new to to the neighborhood. And then a lot of the black families that I spoke to when I knocked on doors, they said, yeah, we don't we don't want this. Um, or in the case of one family, they had initially voted in favor. And then when they learned more about the historic district, they changed their mind. So it was definitely a very mixed response that I got. But it did seem to kind of, again, very unscientifically break down along racial lines and along the lines of like who was new versus old. Through reporting this. What is your take on do historic districts prevent gentrification? Are they agents of gentrification? Is a historic district a good or a bad thing? What's your sense? 
My sense is that it comes down to what the residents themselves want. And I think ultimately a historic district should be a grassroots movement. It should have collective buy-in. And if it's something that a group of neighbors neighbors collectively decide is the right thing for their neighborhood, then it's a good thing. But if it's something that's popular among a few neighbors and not really explained to the majority of the neighbors and it's just something that pops up um, and doesn't have a lot of grassroots support, then I don't necessarily know if it's a good idea. Ultimately, I think it just has to come down to what the homeowners want. Is it possible to have a historic district without contributing to gentrification? I think that's an interesting question. I have seen communities, not necessarily historic districts, but I have seen communities lobby for like limitations on certain types of development as a way to control development in a way that they're more satisfied with. Like, for example, in Denver Harbor, like a historically Latino portion of Fifth Ward, they're really lobbying for like minimum lot sizes so that you can't take one of these older homes and split it up into townhomes. And they're seeing that as a way to prevent unwanted development that they they, they think would displace them um, by driving up the value of land. Um, I feel like there haven't been any huge scientific studies on the ultimate results, you know, on, on property values, et cetera. But I do think some communities use it to prevent gentrification and that they've been sort of happy with the way it's turned out so far. And again, that was a grassroots effort going back to your point, Nora. So that was ultimately what I wanted to do with my reporting. And maybe this was lazy of me, but I hoped that somebody who read my stories in the Chronicle would come away asking themselves that question. And as I put it in one of the first stories I wrote about this, I wondered, was this historic district and I guess historic districts in general, are they instruments of gentrification or are they bulwarks against gentrification? I think where I come down is that by the time you get people talking about a historic district, regardless of what race they are or socioeconomic class, they have enough trust in government to go to government for this designation. So I think it does take communities that have enough trust in their local representatives and in their local government in in the goodness of those forces and those institutions. And it's more communities that have that trust that are going to seek out these types of historic protections. Yeah. And I guess as you've highlighted, the difference here was that it seemed like this idea came from, quote unquote, newcomers to the community as opposed from arising from maybe some of the people who had deeper roots. Yeah, I think that was probably part of the mistrust. But, you know, there's also this whole historical question. And I guess also going back to like whether or not more regulations is going to protect against gentrification. Another example that comes to mind is places around around the country are like trying to remove some zoning because a lot of places have zoning designating only single families here. And the cities are like, there's not enough affordable housing. And that's because we can't build more densely. We Mm -hmm. need to get rid of that zoning in order to like slow the speed of like unaffordability. But in Houston, there is no zoning. It's 
there's only like this privatized zoning sort of of deed restrictions where community agrees we're only going to build this type of building here. Yeah, historically, places with deed restrictions did not allow minorities to live there. And so minorities were living in these areas with no zoning. And what happened? Um, People were building factories and all these other things that, you know, factories, industrial uses, liquor stores, dump sites in the neighborhood. And obviously that's going to also not be good for a neighborhood, right? Like you, you do want to protect against some of these things that could cause your property value to go way down or way up. Ultimately, it's about who has the time and the energy and the power to advocate for their own neighborhood Hmm. versus who doesn't. And I think what you heard from both Elizabeth and Addison speaking at City Hall that day, that was a day where the, the mayor withdrew something because of their advocacy against it. And so I think for them, it felt like it seemed like a celebration of their success in advocating for their own neighborhood that maybe past generations hadn't had. Um, so I think it was especially sweet for them to feel like they maybe finally had a mayor who would listen to them and be their champion in, in a way that they hadn't had in the past. The whole controversy just showcases how well-intentioned historic district may be in some cases that may not align uh, with the, the broader vision of the community from the actual residents and kind of shows how it's, it can be uh, more complicated, I guess, than, than it seems in just slapping this historic district label on something and keeping these buildings there. Uh, so I guess I walked away thinking that it's sort of like a cautionary tale on, on how not to do historic districts or a tale on how to defeat them. <laughs> <laughs> but also, a, a yeah, I'd say it's a cautionary tale, but also then maybe a, a roadmap to how to do them properly, which is you get community investment and you make it a really collective effort and the community community comes together and decides what they want to save in their neighborhood, why their neighborhood is important to them, what it means to them. And that's just a lot harder than than just putting some rules in place. Well, thanks, Nora, for coming on and talking to us about this super interesting conversation and controversy. And we also want to thank our editors, Lily Thomas and Rob Gavin and our producer, Scott Kingsley. And Thanks to Farrell Gibbs and his band, All the Komodos, for the theme music. And of course, as always, thank you listeners for tuning in. Until next time.